We are currently studying the Gospel of Luke. If you're new to Revolution Church, we like to study books of the Bible verse by verse, the way God wrote it, and study it that way. That way it keeps us on track and focus and not get Gary off on the different tangents and hobby horses, right? And as I mentioned, there will be a question and answer session at the end, so you can text that number right there. It'll be on the screen again at the end of the message. You can also just raise your hand if you'd rather do that. Our scripture reader this morning is Alon Noel. Alon, you can read God's word as everybody follows along. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the living, breathing, active word of God. I pray that we would totally depend upon it for our rule of life and everything we do. May it guide our thoughts, our minds, and open it up to our eyes this morning so we could be more like Jesus. It's his name we pray. When I was a kid, there was a TV show called Mission Impossible. Some of you all probably have seen the movies that have come out of that. And what Jesus is asking us to do this morning, if you try to do it on your own and in the flesh, it, it truly is Mission Impossible. It, it's not something that you can do on your own. Um, if you're new to Revolution, you've probably, you, you, we, I, something I often talk about is a chiastic structure. It's where in Hebrew, the culture over there, they, they don't speak like we do in the Western mindset. We start at the beginning and we go sequentially to the end, and that's the story. But in the Hebrew Middle Eastern mindset, they start with an idea and they'll work their way into the most important point of the story, and then they'll work their way back out symmetrically like they started ending with the same thing. So like with a sandwich, you start with bread and mayonnaise if you're, if you're smart, and then you work your way into the meat, and then you work your way back out, and of course you repeat mayonnaise and bread again. And that's what Jesus is doing here in this passage right here. He, he starts off, and I, again, the, the print is small, but I just want you to follow the colors. He starts with, love your enemies and do good. That's important, because he ends with that as well. He works his way in through the sandwich, and he talks about giving to anyone, don't expect back, because you know, that's what the pagans do. They lend to other people and they just expect to get the same amount back. You see the parallel there. As he works his way in further, he, talks, he gives us the golden rule. As you would have people to do to you, do so to them. He works his way back out. But what is the meat of the sandwich? It is this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? How are you any different? That's the key of what Jesus is trying to tell us this morning. And so... Matthew, in several chapters, has the Sermon on the Mount. 
Luke, or, Luke, in a more condensed version, has the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm sorry, Sermon on the Plain. Jesus taught the same sermon in different locations, and he modified it to the audience, not changing anything essential, but just toning it towards people's needs in that situation. So you will see some difference between Luke's account and Matthew's account. But either way, it's the greatest sermon ever preached, and that's what we're going to get into this morning. But again, remind you of what is the main point. What's the difference between you and sinners? If you're doing the same thing to, to, as they are, what benefit is that to you? What benefit is that to them? So here's how we're going to divide this chapter up uh, into four parts, this passage. First of all, he talks about the obvious. Love your enemies. Love to your enemies. Number two, generosity to the needy. Number three, consideration to everyone. And then finally, mercy to be observed. So let's jump right in. Verse 27 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Notice he starts off with the, the, the conjunction there, but based on what he just got done teaching last week is that people are going to treat you badly. He talked about, woe to you who are poor. He told you, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the needy, because later you're going to be blessed. But if you're blessed in this life, you're full in this life, you're rich in this life, woe to you, because if this life is all that matters to you, you've got some bad news coming. Then Jesus makes the contrast. But here's what I want to say to you, to you, to you who hear. You see that phrase often that Jesus used. Those who have ears to hear, what? Let them hear. Seven times in the book of Revelation, no coincidence there on that number, he says, let it, those who have an ear to hear, let them hear what he says to the churches. You say, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, we all have ears in here. I don't know that anybody around me is deaf. Some people have hearing aids, but everybody can hear. He's not talking about the physical ear, is he? He's talking about, is your mind open? Is your heart open? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they're saying, yeah, but what about the Bible here and the contradictions here? And you show them, wait, but this isn't a contradiction. Look at this. And this. Yeah, but what about this over here? It's like, wait a minute. You just brought up a point. I just showed you where the Bible is true, and you move on to something else. Does that person really want to hear? No. And he's saying, look, I need those of you who really have your minds open, your hearts open. I need you to hear what I'm about to say because this is radical. This is revolutionary, if you don't mind the term there. In Romans 10, 17, he says that faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing through the words of Christ. Say, so, Gary, I don't know. I just don't know if I have enough faith to believe in Christianity. I don't know if I have enough faith to believe in the gospel, or to believe in God, or to believe that the Bible is true after these thousands of years. Here's my suggestion to you. You want faith? Listen with an open mind and an open heart to the words of Christ. Listen. Just get into the Bible. It's amazing how many people will criticize the Bible and I say, have you actually read the Bible through? No. I showed a video to the teens this morning where this lady, was, a street preacher, was preaching the gospel and I asked this lady, you know, what do you think about the Bible? She said, oh, the Bible's beautiful. It's beautiful. I've never read the Bible, but the Bible is beautiful. And she's like, you've never read the Bible, but you're going to say it's beautiful. But then she turned around and said that God doesn't exist. It was just like people will say all kinds of things based on their feelings. If, if there was anything that's different today, and by today I mean the last 15 years or so, than when I was a kid and when many of you were a kid, is the biggest idol that we worship today is our feelings. I feel like a woman. I feel like this. I, I feel my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. I believe that 2 plus 2 is 17 and a half. 
And everybody's just on their feelings. And reality like means nothing because we are in a postmodern culture where everything is relative. And what I'm telling you is that doesn't work in science. It doesn't work in math. Why do you want it to work in theology? Why do you want it to work with God in the universe? Um, if you have struggle with faith, listen to the Word of God with an open heart and open mind. And, and I don't, we, we, all, we put on the sign out there, skeptics welcome. We do Q&A and we get questions from skeptics all, often. And so we're open to that because you do not have to shut your brain to be a Christian. You need to uh, exercise trust in something, but what you choose to trust, you can trust the science. You know, I believe science is uh, on, on our side, but people have their different views on that. But I would also trust this man right here. I would trust Jesus Christ for several reasons. Number one, look at the life he lived, okay? He, without the internet, without publishing any books, without an army, without ever running for office, without ever traveling 200 miles away from where he was born, he changed the world. It is 2024 because 2,024 years ago, he was born. He put the cross in the middle of history. Everything is either B.C. or A.D., or if you want to go B.C.E. and do all that stuff to try to eliminate Christ, it's all about him. But not only did he live the perfect life, has anyone ever taught like he has taught? The Sanhedrin sent soldiers to arrest him, and they came back without Jesus. Like, what happened? We sent you to arrest him. Be like, have you ever heard this guy talk? We have never heard a man preach like this guy preaches. They, they defied orders to arrest the guy because they were just so blown by his teaching. And to this day, the Sermon on the Mount, which we're studying now, is the most powerful sermon, the most powerful dialogue ever in the history of the world. That, that There are more people that are follow this man right here than any other religion in the world. And so I would listen to him. And here's the third reason I would listen to him, is because he rose from the dead. That's some pretty heavy-duty proof right there. He, not only, he didn't just happen to rise dead. He predicted it. He told them how he would die, who would kill them, and prophecies 600 and 700 years before it all happened, prophesied it. And on the third day, just like he said, he rose from the dead. And he didn't just disappear. For 40 days, he walked the earth, showing people, hey, look, nail scars. See this side, scar on my side? See all this? You want, I'm not a ghost. Give me something to eat. He proved his resurrection, and his resurrection from the dead means he needs to be listened to, not just be dismissed from whatever theories you've learned in college. He says, here's what I really want you to hear. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. This was so counterculture, okay? This, is so, this was so radical, not only for unbelievers, but even for the believers at the time. The Pharisees, who were the predominant religious group in, in the day, they, they twisted the Old Testament scriptures, especially in De Deuteronomy, where it said an eye for an eye. And they say, oh, there we, there we had to get a revenge. What Deuteronomy through Moses was teaching was, you don't do disproportionate punishment. If someone does this level of crime, you meet it with this level of punishment. You don't do this. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's just, it was a metaphor of equal justice, equal crime, and that they need, the two need to match. But again, they were like getting retaliation. Jesus is saying, no, love your enemies. And the, the whole culture was contrary to this. You think about, think about all the wars that have happened in the history of the world. Lots of them, okay? I love history. And you think about where they just would go in, especially the Romans, they would destroy a village, and then they would pour salt all over their farmland to destroy it for generations to come. They were so revengeful, so spiteful. 
And then you fast forward through history, the United States of America, again, not a perfect nation, not trying to justify everything that's ever been done, but because our ethic was built on this, we destroyed Japan. Okay? We used the first uh, atomic bombs on them because they would not re re uh, um, surrender. So Nagasaki and Hiroshima, just devastated. And then you know what we did through the Marshall Plan? We went in and rebuilt Japan with our own money, millions of dollars. Germany, Auschwitz and all the other places, we bombed the heck out of them, destroyed Germany, and then we went in with our own money under the Marshall Plan and rebuilt Germany. We built them factories. So where are the two best car companies in the world? Japan and German, okay? And then, of course, our cars too. Because we built their factories for them, we rebuilt them because we were taught to love your enemies. No other nation on the history of the world has ever done that for their enemies. They raped and pillaged and said, we hope you never come back. And we rebuilt them because of this Christian ethic. But you look at the world we live in today, if you don't agree with somebody, burn it down. You don't agree with your enemy, you riot. And you throw bricks at them. You burn things, you destroy their businesses, you loot. If you don't like somebody, you don't hate them, you just divorce them, you just destroy the family. If you don't agree with someone, you go into their school and you just shoot up innocent children. And you just, that's the world we live in today where everything has fallen apart. It has nothing to do with love your enemy. And we wonder why people are, depression is rising at greater rates than ever in the history of mankind. And that people are self-medicating, turning to drugs of all kinds of forms, alcohol and everything because love your enemy is not the world we live in anymore at all. We, we instead of love your enemies, you cancel your enemies. You don't allow them to talk. You don't even have decent discussions. You just say F you and walk away. You shut down. Don't allow them to speak on your college campus, whatever. You don't allow your enemy to even speak. You shut down their, plat their platform. You censor them. Whatever happened to people, liberal or conservative, having a discussion, like two intelligent people, it just doesn't happen anymore because we've forsaken what Jesus said about love your enemies. Let me, here's the problem. Like I said, the idol of our culture is feelings. And love is not a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Every song on the radio will tell you that it is, and the Bible will tell you that it's not. First of all, love is a commitment to do what is in the best interest of others. To do what's in the best interest of others. If I love you, I will do what's best for you. I will not give you everything you want. If I love my children, I don't spoil them with everything they want. I give them what they need because I'm acting in their best interest. Man, you cannot travel around the city of Houston without encountering someone on a corner, will work for food, need a dollar, whatever, hungry, homeless, whatever. And are we to love them? Absolutely. But if I love them, I will do what's in their best interest. If I give them a $5 bill, I know that equals a slit, slit small liquor bowl. <laughs> and if they're an alcoholic, how in the world am I helping them? If I drive through McDonald's and I buy them a sandwich and I come back with a bag and I give them a, a bottle of water and, and a sandwich, that is helping them. Some people say, well, I'm not responsible for what they do with it. If you know full well that they're going to use it for something illicit that will harm them, you are responsible. We're supposed to use discernment. The Bible says love one another with discernment. And so it's a commitment to do what's in the best interest of other people, not in my best interest necessarily. Christ gave his life for us. And he goes on to say, but I say to you here, do here love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Be neutral. Oh, I don't hate them. I just, I just act like they don't exist. 
that really is another definition of hate. You should totally dismiss them, act like they don't exist. Neutral is not an option. You are called to do what? Do good. He goes on to say, bless them who curse you. So someone is giving you the F-bomb, someone is talking trash about you, someone is talking smack behind your back, all these things. You know what the Bible says you do? You speak up and say, well, you know what? I'm sorry they feel that way. Well, I actually like them and I pray for them. I really wish the best for them. You say God's blessing upon them. And if they're abusing you, mistreating you at work, t- calling you names at school, you pray for them. So look at these three actions that, again, love is not a feeling. Love is action, acting in a commitment towards the best interest of others. He's asking you to do good, to bless, to pray. To do good means physically go out there and do something for them. Buy something for them, give them something, whatever, offer to help them move, whatever it takes. To bless means to do something verbally. While they're speaking bad about you, you're speaking good about them. And not only are you speaking to others good about them, but you're speaking to God about them. Right now, I'm sure each one of us can think of, and a, and a face or a name is going to pop in your mind instantly, of someone who you just like, ugh. Okay? That took about a half a second, right? Okay? When's the last time you have prayed for them? When's the last time you've texted them and said, hey, just one let you know I was praying for you? Or is there any way I could help you? You want to blow their mind. They're like, what? Why would they do that? They know I don't like them. I mean, we need to be actively doing what is totally opposite of our human nature, not doing what is natural, but doing what is supernatural. He goes on to say, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. It's like you're walking down the road and someone walks up and just jacks you in the jaw and you go, hey, wow, here, do this one too while you're at it. That's not what the Bible is talking about. How did people in the Middle East greet one another? Even men, women, they kissed each other on a cheek, right? It was when you greet someone and they dismiss you like, I don't want to talk to you, you offer that the other cheek like, hey, next time you see them, I'm still willing to greet you. I'm not going to hold a grudge. You may be holding a grudge to me. When I was young, I was quite chubby, <laughs> and I was called fat often, you know, and, and it hurt my feelings. And I, was, I told my mom about uh, being chubby and being fat and how kids would make fun of me, and she told me, Gary, just be the bigger person. <laughs> but literally, we do need to be the bigger person. Many times there are people who are just immature, evil, whatever you want to call it, don't stoop to their level. You're a child of God. They're not. They have probably an excuse. Maybe they are a child of God behaving like a child who's not. But it says, it goes on to say, it's not just a verbal thing or a greeting thing. It's if, if someone steals your jacket, offer your shirt also. I would put, put it in our terms here. This is how people dressed during those days. They had, an, they had three layers. They had basically what would be underwear. They had a tunic, and then they had a cloak over that. And someone steals your cloak because, you know, you put it down while you're working, and they took it. You say, hey, if you're that cold, hey, I'll give you this also. You want to make someone feel about this big? Be more generous to them instead of retaliating to them. And again, the goal is not make them feel small, but to make them repent. To feel like, wow, I was pretty bad to that person, and they treated me kindly. I remember it was about, oh gosh, it would be like 20 years ago, 18, 20 years ago, I was coaching high school football down in Lake Jackson, and there was a young man on the team who was a, with the quarterback, and my son as the freshman was the backup quarterback, 
And this kid was a good athlete, but on the second week of football, he broke his arm. So then Lance came in. It was now the starting quarterback. And Lance lit it up and did super well. And so six weeks later, when this kid's arm was better, the coach had a quarterback controversy. Do I go back to the starting quarterback, or do I keep this kid who's undefeated right now? And so he tried to be diplomatic and play them both a little bit, but it became obvious to everybody that Lance was just doing much better. And so the next game, Lance was the starter and all that. Well, the, the father of that other son started being really snarky to me. <laughs> and any group, group emails that were to the parents or to the athletic department, he'd reply with something snarky. And whenever you'd see me, he'd say something sarcastic to me. And man, I wanted to do a lot of things, okay? I, I, but I, I, I had a lot I could have said and all that stuff, but I just kept being nice to him. I kept loving him. I kept trying to do what the Lord wanted me to do, listen to the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know, a year later, after his son graduated, he came to me and said, hey, I owe you an apology. He said, here's what was going on. I was just wrapped up in my son's success, and when he wasn't the starting quarterback anymore, it just hurt me greatly. I was hurting for him, and I took it out on you. He said, will you forgive me? And, I, and, and we, we, we patched things up and became friends after that. But that would not have happened if I had retaliated. It would not have happened if I had just done the same things he was doing to me. And people can do that and say, well, they started it. Are we in fourth grade now? Is this recess? I mean, what are we going to, are we going to be a mature Christian adults, or are we going to be the bigger person and love our enemies? That's what Jesus is calling us to do. See, if you don't love them, you will become them. You, when you let bitterness and resentment occupy your heart, you will become what is driving them. Hurt people hurt people. And if you let the hurt sink into your heart and start a root of bitterness, like the book of Hebrews says, then that root will begin to push forth and bring out fruit, and it's not good fruit. It will start showing, you will start becoming more sarcastic, more bitter, and more just disagreeable with life in general because you didn't let it go. But if you do love them, you will become like your heavenly father. See, God loved us, and while we were yet, what? Sinners, the enemies of God, he loved us. And so when you love someone who hates you, you are doing exactly what God did when he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into a world that hated him, into a world that shook their fist that you will not rule over us. We don't want anything to do with you and your son. In World War II, Hitler killed over 6 million Jews and also many Christians in, in the mix as well. And I'm surprised that today you talk to kids today about what's the Holocaust, they have no idea. You ask them how many Jews were killed, they have no clue. They can tell you their pronouns, but they can't tell you any history. And those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. Over six million Jews were killed. They were loaded onto trains thinking they were being transported somewhere, but the trains just locked up and they were, it was basically a mobile gas chamber. Corey Ten Boom and her family were Christians and they would hide Jews in their basement and in the walls of their house. They had several hidden compartments in their house where they would hide Jews at the risk of their own life. They did that for hundreds and hundreds of Jews who would travel through and try to get them over to Holland. And that's where Corey Ten Boone and her family lived. And, um, but then they were discovered. And so Corey and her young sister were put into a concentration camp. You can read about this in the book called The Hiding Place. 
But after the war, Corey went to speak in a church in Munich to Germans. She wanted to share the message of God's forgiveness with them. And as she was speaking, after she was done, she, said, she says, and I quote, and that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next the blue Nazi uniform and a visored cap with his skull and crossbones. It, came, it all came back to me with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking past this man naked. I, I could see my sister's frail, starving body ahead of me, ribs sh uh, sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard in Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he is standing right in front of me, his hand thrust out, and says, A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than to take his hand. He would not remember me, of course, how could he remember one prison prisoner amongst thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Robin's book in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for just asking and I stood still there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, as an incredible thing took place, the current started in my shoulder, it raced down my arm, it sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being and bring tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Forgiveness doesn't come from feeling. You don't forget whether you feel or not. Well, you choose to do what's right. The feelings will come later. This is what Christianity is all about. We forgive those who hate us. We love those who, and love to say, we bless them who curse us. Refusing to forgive will leave you messed up. <laughs> you, you may be so messed up, your therapist may have to go to therapy if you hold on to that grudge. Forgiveness, refusing to forgive is like drinking poison hoping the other person dies. You think you're in control by not forgiving them. You're just hurting yourself as well as disobeying the gospel of Christ. Second point, generosity to the needy. Generosity to the needy. Give to everyone who begs from you. 
Now, Jesus is speaking in axiomatic, axiomatic phrases, which means they're generally true. Like, if you, if you do good, you live longer. Well, all of us know good people who did good who died young, right? In general, if you live a right life, you will live longer than those who don't. That, so it's an axiomatic phrase. So when he says in hyperbole, give to everyone ask, so there's obviously a balance. And the same scripture teaches us that you're supposed to take care of your family first, okay? But if everyone who doesn't do that, the simple thing of taking care of your family by providing for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Ephesians 4 says one of the reasons for us to work is so that we have enough to not only provide for our family, so we have also enough to give away. So then opportunities come up to give things away. And again, I, I take you back to people in need. You have to be discerning. Sometimes a sandwich is better than a $5 bill. But here he says, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Again, he's talking about getting revenge, taking the things. He's not saying you don't have civil retribution, you don't have a case in court. In fact, what's really interesting is our country obviously came from England, for those who don't study history. And in England, in lawsuits, it would be Smith versus Johnson. But our founding fathers wanted to obey the gospel. And they said, wait a minute, we're supposed to turn the other cheek, but yet at the same time, 1 Corinthians says that government is given to punish evildoers. How can we reconcile these two? Here's what we'll do. The individuals, which is what Jesus is talking about, can turn the other cheek, but the state will enforce the laws. And that's why you see in the state of Texas, lawsuits will say the state of Texas versus so-and-so. Because the state doesn't have to worry about turning the other cheek. The state's job is to punish evildoers. So therefore, let's say someone molest your child. The state can step in and put them in prison for life. Unless it's California, then they'll let them out in two years. But the state can step in and do that, and you can go visit them in prison and say, you know what, I forgive you, I love you, and I'm praying for you. I hope you find Jesus in this prison. There's no contradiction there. The, the New Testament clearly teaches that government is supposed to enforce laws and punish evildoers, but we're not the ones carrying out the punishment. That's what used to happen prior to the democratic republics in the world. It was just, this clan gets revenge on this clan. This village attacks this village. This family says, well, you hurt our daughter, we're going to hurt your daughter. And that's what you had going on. That's what's been going on in Serbia and Croatia for thousands of years. You did this, we're going to do this. What is happening in Israel and Palestine? You did this, well, we're going to do this. You did this, and, and then you have to go back. How far do we go back to find who's at fault here? Where is love your enemies? You see, if the world would just do what Jesus said, we wouldn't have these problems, but the world will not because the world will not make Christ their Lord. So as we continue the thought of being generous to the needy, think about how Christianity has changed the world. Right now, we live in a culture that says, you're the problem. If you're a Christian, you're the one that's a hater. You're the one who's homophobic, transphobic, bigoted, etc. I want you to consider that the hospitals in this world were invented by Christianity. Hospitals didn't exist. People would just let, they would carry, they would drag sick people out and let them out to die because they didn't want to spread the disease. Christians stayed in the cities at the risk of their own peril to take care of them. And they started turning their homes into places where it had been hospitality to a hospital. More hospitals are named after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John than anybody else. You don't see hospitals, very many hospitals named after Muhammad, but you see them named after the followers of Jesus Christ. Orphanages were invented by Christians. The overwhelming majority of orphanages on the planet, taking care of the most needy people on the planet, are established by Christians. Slavery has happened all over the world by all different colors of people in every different direction. But it was Christians in England 
and in the United States who said, we're going to put an end to slavery. Men like William Wilberforce and mixed-race Theodore Weld and women, a daughter of a pastor, Harriet Beecher Foe. These people lost all, of, all their riches in order to fight slavery. They were called abolitionists. And for the first time in the history of the world, slavery was stopped, not because it just didn't work or because slaves escaped or had a rebellion. It's because by a law they said this is wrong based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. When, you, when, when there are catastrophes around the world, who is the first to respond? The American Red what? Cross. Not the American Red Crescent. The American Red Cross. Also, the Samaritan's Purse worldwide, feeding people in disasters and taking care of people in, in the name of Jesus Christ. Alcoholics Anonymous was started by who? Christians. The most, one of the most successful recovery programs in the world started by Christians. In the city of Houston, where do homeless people go? The Star of Hope, a Christian organization. There is no state-run organization that even compares to the work that they do. Based on even Boy Scouts of America, started by a Christian. YMCA, the list goes on of life-changing organizations that have been started by Christians. We are not the enemies, but we will be treated like because Jesus said that. But Jesus wants us, to point number three, to be considerate to everyone. This is what's commonly called the golden rule. So as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Sounds pretty simple. Easy to understand, not easy to live. This is something that change is countercultural. We look out for number one. We step on others as we climb the ladder of success to do what we want to do. But this comes down to every little detail of life. Our kids need to learn this. If you open it, what? Close it. If you turn it on, what? If you break it, if you borrow it, if you use it, if you make a mess, if it doesn't belong to you, leave it alone. This is what used to be called common sense. But now it's not. It's like, no, but I want it. I remember one time, a little kid, we were at Bounce Town, and he stole something. And I said, hey, that, that's not yours, but I want it. I said, yeah, but you got to pay for it. No, but I want it. And this kid wasn't like three. This kid was seven. And it was like nothing else mattered in the world, but he wanted it. And you say, well, that's what kids do. No, that's what rapists do. It doesn't matter if it's illegal. It doesn't matter if it's going to ruin her life for the rest of her life. It doesn't matter that I might go to jail. I want it. And that's the culture we live in. If you want it, go for it. What should hold you back? What should hold you back is the golden rule, that we are to love one another as we want to be loved, do to them as we want to be done to us. So consideration to everyone, and now we go to the fourth point, mercy to be observed. Mercy, that is to be observed. So Jesus asked a rhetorical question. So if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And another way, this is, another translation says, what reward is that to you? In other words, if you want me to reward you in heaven, you oh, you loved your mom? Pagans do that. What reward do you want for that? Another translation says it this way, what credit is that to you? See, if we're supposed to live differently, where people can say, wow, what is different about them if we only love those who love us, if we only are in our Christian clique, and we only love our church members, and we've got our church family, and we don't have any friends outside this building, then something is seriously wrong. 
He says, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what, what benefit, what credit, what reward is that to you? Sinners, lost people, people who don't know Jesus, they do that. That's just, that's just common sense. You see, when you try to explain the love of Christ to someone who believes in evolution, they'll say, well, being good to your own clan, being good to your own tribe, that preserves the clan, preserves the tribe, preserves the species. Okay, so now what's your explanation for when I love my enemy? What's your explanation when I actually take a meal to someone in prison who violated my family? What's your explanation for that? There is no explanation for that. That's the differentiator. You see, it's just natural to only love those who love you. That's natural. Dogs do that. Cats might be able to do that. People do that all the time. It's just supernatural, though, to love those who hate you. That's the difference maker. That's what the world needs to see, the supernatural love of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, be merciful, and here's how. Well, first of all, let's explain mercy. Grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you do deserve. You see, one of the questions that skeptics ask often, and it's a good question, is how can a loving God send anyone to hell? The problem is it's the wrong question. The question should be, how can a holy God not send everybody to hell? We've all sinned against this holy God. We've all shaken our fists, maybe not literally, but in our hearts we've said, I, you will not rule over me. Even though you created me, even though you give me the very lungs that I breathe with and the air to breathe into my lungs, even though you're the one who wakes me up, makes my heart beat, you're the one that gave me life, you're the one that makes me live where I live, and that I was born in this country, not in Sudan, and yet we will say, but today I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to sin in the way that I want to do. I'm going to do what pleases me. But for that, we all sin against the Holy God, and the wages of sin is what? Is death. So your question shouldn't be, how can God send anyone to hell? Is how does he not send everyone to hell? How does he merciful and gives us an opportunity not to get what we do deserve? So we are supposed to be merciful, not giving people what they deserve. You see, the world is tit for tat, eye for an eye. Jesus says, no, it doesn't matter what they've done to you, they've done worse to me. And if you claim to be a child of mine, you can't do that. You need to be merciful like your heavenly Father is merciful. Romans 5, 6 says, for while we were still weak, in other words, in, in, unable to save ourselves, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Until you see yourself as the ungodly, you can't be saved. If you're like, oh, but I'm a good person. I'm better than everybody else. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. Your works have nothing to do with it. None of us could be good enough. There's none righteous, no, not one. He, Paul goes on to say in Romans, God shows his love for us in that while we were what? Still sinners. Jesus didn't say, you know what? If you guys at least straighten up a little bit, I'll come die for you. No, when the world was at its worst, he came and he died and he took our place on the cross. Matthew 5.16 says this, In the same way, let your light, talking to believers, let your light so shine before others, your good works, so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father in heaven, your Father who is in heaven. So when people see you forgiving, when the unforgivable, loving those who hate you, blessing those who curse you, praying for those who despitefully use you, when they see that, they're like, wait a minute. There's something going on here. This is not natural. This is supernatural. And I need some of that. 
I, I need to be like that person. So we're to love our enemies. We're to be generous and needy. We're supposed to be considerate to everyone. And we're supposed to be, do mercy in a way that is observed. And we talk about this as mission impossible. And it is. You can't do this in the flesh. You will, if you're an unbeliever trying to live the Christian life, you will fall flat on your face and be totally frustrated. But with the power of the Holy Spirit and Christ living in you, this is mission possible. You can do this when you're in the Word of God, praying and asking God, please, I, Father, help me. I do hate this person. I wish they would just die. I wish they would just go away. But not what I want. Your will be done. Love them through me. Let me just be a vessel. Let me be a conduit where your love, the power of the Holy Spirit flows through me to them. And with your help, I can do this. In Acts chapter 3, what God, if you don't have that power, if you're not a believer in Christ, you're called to repent. Where repentant means about face. It was a military term. You're marching in one direction, you stop, you turn the other, you turn away from your good works, your religion, all your plans, you say, God, none of that matters anymore. I'm following you. I repent. I want to follow Jesus Christ and turn back. And if you do that, your sins will be blotted out. It says, for the wages of sin, as we mentioned before, is death, but the free gift, not because you earn it, not because you deserve it. We sang that earlier. You receive it, that the eternal life that is provided through Christ our Lord, because he died on the cross for our sins. And if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you give everything to him because he gave everything for you, and you truly believe in your heart that he died, was buried, on the third day he rose from the dead, you will be what? Have you made that decision? I was, I was nine years old. I was at Newark Baptist Church at Vacation Bible School, and I heard a message like this. And I realized I was a sinner. I had always heard that Jesus died, but I never knew why. And now I knew he died for Gary. And I bowed my head, and I said, Lord, save me. And he forgave me of all my sins. And have I lived a perfect life since then? No, absolutely not. But I know I'm forgiven. You can experience that same forgiveness. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If there's one here today who's never trusted Christ, never made this, I'm not asking you, have you been baptized? I am not asking. I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm not asking you, are you religious? Or do you believe in God? I'm asking, have you trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as your only hope of heaven. You can make that decision right now. In your own words, cry out to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. It's so powerful. And Lord, there's so much more in this passage that we could have talked about, but you teach us, Lord. And I pray that more than just knowing these facts now, we won't just be informed Christians. We will be transformed Christians. We will go out and we will live differently live in a way where our mercy is observed, where people say, wait a minute, why did he turn the other cheek? Why is she blessing that person who's talked so much trash about her? Father, help us to be truly different, not in our own flesh, but through the power of your Spirit. May that power be evident and obvious. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want more information about how to be a Christian, maybe you're still not there yet, text me, call me. I would love to have a conversation with you. And if there's someone you wish was sitting here next to you to hear this message, invite them to church next Sunday. Uh, again, we have several first-time guests here this morning. Let's give them a hand. We're glad they're here. Um, at, the, at the back tables and the front table, there's these, these cards here. And on the back, it has a QR code where if you scan it, it takes them to a six-minute presentation about the gospel like I just kind of did. And so pass those cards out. Use those and invite people.
All right, let's see. Who am I going to have to help this morning? Michaela, would you like to help me? Okay, so we're going to do a question and answer session. And so you can text your question into that number right there. Now I'll let you read this one. Um, let me make sure I'm... Yeah, anonymous, you can read that. Yeah, yes. Okay. Um, is this my phone? Yes. Yeah, okay. there you go. It says, uh, not really a question. I just wanted to share how all this past week I've been praying for those who hurt me or those who hurt others with words, actions, gossip, judgments, etc. I knew somewhere in the Bible it talks about praying and or loving your enemies. And I was surprised when the message today was just about that. Like the Lord knew what I was going to ask for next Amen. before even asking it. Amen. Very good. All right. Cool. Yes. Praise the Lord for that. Any other questions? All right. Cool. Um, so one of the questions we got before that we didn't have time for was <clears throat> about um, the, the age of the earth. Okay. And how fossils supposedly say billions of years old, but the Bible basically, if you take Genesis 1 through 3 literally, which I do, um, how, how do you reconcile those? Well, first of all, um, fossils are because of the worldwide flood, okay? If you were to bury your dog in your backyard tomorrow, a thousand years from now, your dog would not be there unless you put lime and other ingredients of concrete in there and made that. The flood stirred up all this, and when all the sediment settled, it created a fossil structure, and so that's why evolutionists, we've found hammers in the same layer of dinosaurs that are supposed to be 60 billion years old. And there's a man-made hammer, how they explain that. You can go up to Glen Rose, Texas, and you can see dinosaur footprints with a size 18 human footprint right in the same one. They were running, and all these footprints were going the same direction, running from a flood that was happening, a wall of water, and they were all... You know, um, the, the, the sediment and the mud was there, and then you see fossils there as well. So people will say, yeah, what the Bible says, a day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. They're taking that verse out of context. That's talking about the prophetical chart that God has. First of all, you can't take six, year, six days and make it 6,000, make evolution fit in 6,000, okay? When I was a kid, evolution was millions of years, and now it's billions of years. Now it's going to trillions of years because nothing is changing fast enough. To, to justify the timeline. So why not take God at its word? Uh, one of the most recent uh, discoveries of a, one of the, not the Hubble telescope, what's the other famous telescope? What is it? Yes, the James Webb telescope. So if the Big Bang happened, then the, 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 the galaxies closest to the center should be the oldest and the most formed, and the ones on the periphery should be the youngest galaxies and the least formed. And now the James Webb Telescope has seen galaxies way out there, and they're just as advanced as the ones on the interior. So that blows the whole Big Bang Theory right there. Um, we could go on and on about that in a lot of ways, but any other questions? Okay. Um, what would you share with someone who states that because there's so many intersections and commonalities between religions, that all religions are the same? Essentially, they are negating the gospel. How do you reply to this? I'm, I'm trying to tone my answer down. And I, to put it nicely, 
you haven't even studied religion for 15 minutes if that's your belief. Christianity is so opposite of every other religion. It is so opposite. You just do a 15-minute Google search on biblical Christianity, and you will find out. Every religion in the world says, you do this, this, and this, you go to heaven. The Bible says Christ has done this, you go to heaven. The Bible says you, you can't do any of this. You stink. All the other world's like, hey, you're great. In fact, you have the divine spirit in you. You are God. You're part of the universe. You're part of this. The Bible says, no, you're a lowly sinner in rebellion against God. That's totally contrary to every religion in the world. And it's, biblical Christianity is totally contrary to most Christian religions. I grew up in a denomination saying, hey, Gary, you just be a good little boy and you'll go to heaven. Book, chapter, and verse, please. Would you pull that out of Second Opinion, chapter 4? Where'd you get that? You know, people, just study Christianity, study Jesus. Jesus, see, other religions are like, yeah, well, you're cool, you're cool, whatever, and we can all get along and be ecumenical, and they have the World Council of Churches, they all want to go along. Christianity says, no. Our Savior says he's the only way, and you're all are wrong. Christianity is exclusively different than all the other world religions. It's based on grace, not on works. All the others are based on works. And biggest factor of all, we have a resurrected king. Case closed. <laughs> all right, good deal. Any else have a question? All right, let's stand. Is there another one? We'll do one more while you're standing. Go ahead and stand. Get the blood flowing. This question is, uh, it says, question, how do you react to someone who's punishing another person you love with an unjust punishment? Great, great question. You, you, so Galatians chapter 6, if you see someone overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, means you need to get your heart right first, go and restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. You don't do it like, hey, you stink. You do it in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you all be, also be tempted. You go to them and say, hey, I love you. I care for you. I've been in your shoes, but what you're doing to them is not right. How can I help you to, to be Christ-like in this and love your enemy? You would just go there and put your arm around them and try to help them, but do it in a humble way, not in an arrogant way, considering yourself, because you could have been in that same situation. Good question. All right, we will be done with that. So we, let's read God's Word as a blessing, uh, the Aaronic blessing over one another from Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.